Well, as we stand, let's uh, pray together. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. Heavenly Father, we pray very much indeed that as we study the Bible now, that you would change our minds, that our minds may become more in line with the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray too that the word of God, which we'll hear now, would dwell in us richly, not just for a few moments, but for the rest of our lives, shaping the way we live and bringing glory and honour to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in whose, whose name we pray. Amen. Now as you sit, would you uh, like to take up your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, it's page 1220 in the Church Bibles. I think you'd find it helpful if you had one open in front of you. I certainly would uh, find it helpful if I knew you had one open in front of you, because then you'll be able to see what I'm saying and you'll be able to decide whether it really is what the Bible's saying. If it isn't, you can ignore it, and if it is, it's between you and the Lord, then whether you obey it or not. 1220, 1 Peter chapter 4 and we'll continue in this series looking through the book of uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, page 1220. Almost uh, every day the terrors of war are beamed into our living rooms on the television news and the dangers of servicemen and women uh, and the dangers they have to face when on active service abroad were brought home to me in an article that appeared in Time magazine uh, several years ago in 2002. Here's a little snippet from it, talking about Afghanistan. Afghanistan's post-war era is hardly a peaceful one. The potential for mayhem remains huge. Americans confront what General Tommy Franks, head of US Central Command, estimates to be about a dozen ever-shifting pockets of resistance. Those dangers are exacerbated as American forces are drawn into local feuds and warlord ambitions. It is the multiplicity of perils and the long list of suspects that make Afghanistan one of the world's biggest booby traps. It is the multiplicity of perils that make Afghanistan one of the world's biggest booby traps. In war, dangers come at you from every side and what is true in military combat Peter says here is true spiritually every Christian who wants to live for Christ in this hostile world faces a danger of shifting pockets of resistance and a multiplicity of perils in any Christian's typical day there will be attacks ambushes and attempted kidnaps on us to stop us from living the Christian life now, at work or university, there will be dozens of times every day when those around us would have us live contrary to the way of Christ. Whether we notice it or not, it's all around us all the time. Uh, go out for an evening's entertainment and at the cinema you will be seduced to live a life and a lifestyle that is far from Christian. And if you want to get away from it all and not be influenced at all, if you stay at home, well, that won't solve the problem either as the sin within you raises its ugly head to try to persuade you to deny Jesus. We are at war, and Peter knew that. And that is why he uses the language of battle in this letter. So you just flip back to chapter 2, verse 11. 
Chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the, wo- in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Sin is at war against you and me. The sin that is in us, we can't run from it, it is with us all the time. Now look on to chapter 5, verse 8. Again, look for the, the language of war. Chapter 5, verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is an enemy force. Yeah, he is out there trying to persuade us not to follow Jesus. And then look at our passage tonight, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, notice the word, the word here, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Christian, take up arms because you're in a battle and there is a multiplicity of perils that are trying to take us out. The unseen spiritual realm, the world that is in rebellion to Christ and our own sinfulness from within. Peter, as we see, acknowledges all three in this letter. But in this section, in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, it is the world around us and our own sinfulness that Peter wants to deal with. Verses 1 to 11 are, if you like, the advice of a spiritual bomb disposal expert, telling us how to avoid stepping on the minefield, or or the careful instruction of a spiritual military colonel. These words are to keep us from being ambushed, to keep us safe from the ever-shifting pockets of resistance. And we do need to listen to this tonight. A friend of mine was telling me just this last week of a friend of hers who was sold out for Jesus, but recently has just given up the Christian life. And she can hardly believe it, because this was somebody who encouraged her so much in the past made me start thinking of friends of mine who were great encouragements to me in the Christian life in years gone by but now they have no real sparkle for Christian things oh if you ask them they'd say they were still Christians I'm not even saying they're not but it seems that other things dominate their thinking now their ambitions, their career, their family home improvements, the next exotic holiday they say they still believe but it seems to me as if they've been ambushed And who's to say that isn't going to happen to you and me unless we listen to this advice? So we need to hear these words this evening. If you're taking notes, then uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, winning the battle against sin, and chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, winning the battle against the world. Firstly then, winning the battle against sin. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. We're in a battle, so Peter says, Christian, take up arms. But we're not to fight as the world fights. The armoury of the Christian is to lay down our arms. We're to have an attitude, as the Americans often say, but not an attitude as the Americans use it. We're to have the same attitude as Christ, verse 1, who suffered Innocently, You see, we put down our arms. He suffered innocently and didn't fight back. He suffered for doing good, as we saw in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But that is so hard for you and me. Well, it is for me to suffer physically. No one wants to do that. And when we're innocent, that is so unnatural for us. 
Naturally, when I'm wronged and when I'm innocent, I want to fight back. I begin to plot my revenge. Do you do that? And everything in the world around me tells me to demand my rights. Not that I need any egging on. If someone crosses me, I want to sort it out. I want to sort them out. I'm only a little guy, but I still want to do it. Well, it happened to me just last week. Someone said some things to me that I thought were hurtful and and I thought unfair as well. And as I left the meeting, my mind was racing. I re-ran the conversation in my mind. Do you do that? I love doing it. I love the reruns because I always win in the reruns. In the reruns, I have razor-sharp replies, watertight arguments and great put-downs. I always win the reruns and my, my opponent is always shown to be wrong and unreasonable. And the reruns say it all. My natural reaction is to fight back. Especially if I'm innocent and I'm suffering for doing good. Especially then I want to vindicate myself. No, says Peter, take it on the chin. Because, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitudes. He suffered for doing good. He was in the right. Yet he suffered physically. Now why on earth would I want to do that? Why would I want to suffer? Because suffering for doing good, having the attitude of Christ, helps me to be done with sin. Look again at the end of verse 1. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because... He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now that of course doesn't mean that if I've suffered for Jesus that I will never sin again. It can't mean that. We know it can't mean that. No, verse 2 explains it further. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You see, when I have suffered in my body for doing the right thing, when I have suffered physically for being a Christian, the next time I'm faced with a choice to follow Christ or to sin, I'm far more likely to follow Christ. Because I've already suffered for it once. I think of a man I know in his 20s as a a new Christian. His, His boss at work told him to sack someone who really didn't deserve to be sacked at all. In fact, the irony of it was his boss wanted to give his wife this person's job, which is why he asked somebody else to sack her. Well, in the past, this man had done these sorts of things without questioning his boss. But now he was a Christian, and he wouldn't do it. And he stood up to his boss, and it was a very big step for him. He stood up and he did the right thing. It was a big step, because he knew he ran the risk of being overlooked for the next promotion. It was a tough thing for him to do, and he expected to suffer one way or another. But years on, ask him now about it and he'd tell you that he was pleased he did it. And he'd tell you that having done the right thing once, it was easier to do the right thing the next time because now, verse 2, he does not live his life for human desires. He is no longer driven by the need for the approval of his boss. He's overcome that one. And the desire for promotion doesn't have a hold over him anymore because he'd already made a choice that promotion was not the most important thing for him. He's made costly decisions against those things and for Christ. And the fact is, every time you make a decision not to sin, it is easier not to sin the next time. You see, there will be people here who are struggling with a sin that keeps dogging them. 
in the service, when we have a time of confession, it, 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 for you it is always the same thing that comes to mind. When there's a moment of silence for you to recall something, you know what it is, it's always the same thing. You confessed it last week and the week before and the week before that, the same thing again and again and again. Peter tells us once you've, had, once you've said no to sin, it is easier to say no the next time. And even more when it has cost you physically, when, verse 1, you have suffered in your body. Because then, when sin comes knocking at your door, you'll think, why would I want to do that when I've already suffered for it? So arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. Be ready to suffer for doing good. 4, verse 3, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. What a great line that is. You've spent enough time in the past doing those things. No doubt there'll be plenty of people here who disagree with Peter. You'll look at the list of verse 3 and some will be saying, no, I haven't spent enough time doing that. In fact, I'd quite like some more time to do it. Thank you very much. Others will be a little bit more godly and be agreeing with Peter. No, I don't want to do that stuff anymore. But still, when push comes to shove, when the heat is on... When friends are egging you on, it's so much easier to go with the crowd. It's so much easier to do verse 3, isn't it? When we try to stand for Christ and when we refuse to be involved in the stuff of verse 3, it's so much easier to go with the crowd because what happens, verse 4, if you don't, people think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So you go for a drink after work and stop before you get drunk. And verse 4, those who are going to go on to get drunk heap abuse on you. What's wrong with you, you prude? The fun has only just begun. Do you think you're better than us, you sanctimonious little hypocrite? You'll be abused for doing the right thing. And that is exactly why we should arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, verse 1. If we don't, then sin will get a hold of us. If we choose the stuff of verse 3, you see, we are on a slippery slope to self-destruction. Look at the two words in verse 4, very powerful words. The words plunge and flood. Uh, plunge, it's what you do when you jump into a swimming pool. In, in my book, there are only two ways to get into a swimming pool. There's the, the slowly approach, you know, the toe in first, and then the leg in. Oh, it's cold. Gingerly stepping down. I don't know, are you a, are you a toe in first um, man, Jason? No, good. <laughs> They're wimps, aren't they, toes in first people? My preferred option, and obviously Jason's as well, it's just to jump in, isn't it? Just a plunge. Actually, that's probably more the wimp's way, isn't it? You just can't bear the slowly way in. But anyway, run, jump, and you're in completely. That's how you get, that's how you get into a swimming pool, and that's how sin gets you. Verse 4, plunge into these things, and you will be overwhelmed by them, flooded by them, is the word in verse 4. Now look, we've all seen the effects of floods on our television news. People overpowered by water. And here, Peter says, once you've chosen to live in, is the word he uses in verse 3, once you've chosen to live in or to plunge into the life of, of verse 3, then you will be overwhelmed by that life. 
And I think it's a striking thing if you're into these things. If you look back at the end of chapter 3, Peter has just been writing about the flood of Noah's day. I reckon he might well have that flood in mind. And what does he tell us at the end of chapter 3? That only eight people were saved from that flood. That is how devastating floodwaters are. That is why when I meet people who live the lifestyle of verse 3, they say to me, I can't help it, I can't get out of it. They feel overwhelmed by it, swept along by its power. Once you're in it, I think of several guys who've come to see me because they've been gripped by internet pornography. Another guy who couldn't stop visiting a prostitute. These are Christian men. Shocking, isn't it? No, it's just real. They try to break free. They even come and see the pastor. Their their struggle is so difficult and they are so real about trying to deal with it. But it has overwhelmed them and it consumes them. That's verse 4. Being flooded. And believe me, it is a desperate thing seeing people wreck their lives with drink and sex and drugs, ruining them as themselves and others around them. And that's why verses 1 and 2 are so crucial. Before I get to the point of being overwhelmed, flooded by these things, I must arm myself with the attitude of Christ. To say, I would rather suffer for Jesus than go the way of verse 3. And then, when I've decided that, in, the, in, 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 in a moment where I can be self-controlled, when I've decided that, then when I make my stand in the public arena, I will take the abuse of verse 4. I'll take it, rather than go for the easy option. And I can take it on the chin because I know, as Christ knew, that those who abuse us will not get away with it forever. Look at verse 5. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now verse 5 is pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Verse 5, living or dead, you cannot escape the judgment of God. You don't get much more comprehensive than that. And uh, it's been striking as I've been studying this. In view of the news this week, the majority of people don't believe verse 5. You see, highlighted this weekend, uh, this verse has uh, shown me that uh, people don't believe this because uh, the death of the monster Slobodan Milosevic. What has everybody been saying about that? This is uh, today's Sunday Times, page 15, the headline, The Butcher is Dead. And let me read uh, the, uh, the next uh, section. Slobodan Milosevic's death yesterday was widely greeted as a tragedy because he had escaped justice. Don't believe it. Look at verse 5. Everyone will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. As Slobodan Milosevic died yesterday, he was instantly catapulted from the relative safety of a prison cell in The Hague to the most terrifying peril in the universe, the judgment seat of Almighty God. 
And that is the judgment I should be most fearful of, says Peter. See, don't be driven by the thought of those who judge you today, verse 4, but consider the judgment of God tomorrow, verse 5. If you are more concerned about that judgment and if you are convinced that God will judge, then it won't matter if people give you a hard time now because you know that they will be judged one day. And that one day is near, verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Be clear-minded. It's wise up. It's the opposite of verse 3. Live your life with your mind in gear rather than with the confused senses of a rave party. Self-control, sober thinking. That's what we need if we're to pray, says Peter in verse 7. And you need to pray if you're to arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. Well, that's the way we win the battle against sin. Secondly, winning the battle against the world, verses 8 to 11. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. That's it, love each other deeply. If we're to stand against the world, a world that is against us, we need to love each other. That's why being part of a Christian body, a church, is so important. We're not meant to be individuals as Christians. We can't survive as individual Christians. The big thrust then of these verses is love each other. Loving one another will enable us to stand fast when we receive abuse and rejection for being a Christian in the world. I can still remember the feeling of uh, relief and excitement that I felt each Friday evening as I drove home from work when I used to work in the newspaper business. After a week of work of trying to stand for Christ, Knowing that that evening, Friday evening, I was going to the 20s Bible study group that evening was such a relief. Knowing that I would be among a group of people, a group of Christians who would love me and love me unconditionally. Knowing that I no longer had to stand up for what I believed because they believed it too was really liberating. See, when the world is against us, we need to love each other. And loving each other will, well, mean three things, according to Peter. First, loving each other deeply will mean bearing with each other's faults. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, I'm convinced as Peter writes that, he's got uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 in his mind. There's no need to turn it up. Uh, But if you're taking notes, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, it goes like this. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. See, when there's no love lost between people, the slightest thing winds them up. Have you noticed it? Look at a family where relationships have broken down. And look at the petty little things that cause arguments. The way the table is set at mealtime, the positioning of the knife, fork and spoon is blown out of all proportion. But where there is love, no one cares a fig about the positioning of the cutlery, honestly. We say love is blind, fall in love and you really don't see the faults of your lover. And even if you do, when you are really in love, you'll put up with their little foibles and their annoying little habits and their sins 
That's verse 8. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's what should be going on among you and me. Among us here in church, week in and week out. That's exactly the environment we need when the world is at war against us. To come to church and to know that you are loved and accepted unconditionally. To know that even though you have no end of annoying little habits, and you do, we love you anyway. That is a great environment to be in, isn't it? But do you see what a challenge this is to us? Next time somebody winds you up, you don't start moaning about them, you ask the Lord to help you to love them more. And as we do that, Christchurch Forward will be a great place to be. Well, it is a great place to be, but as we do it more and more, it will be an even better place to be. And it will be a safe place when the world is against us. We can come here and know that actually people love us rather than look out for all our problems. Wouldn't that be wonderful? First, loving each other deeply will mean bearing with each other's faults. Second, loving each other deeply will mean offering hospitality to each other. Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It it seems such an insignificant verse. It is one of the most powerful verses in this letter. If we lived verse 9, it would transform our witness in the world. And to grasp how powerful this is, most of us will have to change our understanding of hospitality. I love that Donald Coggan's definition of hospitality. True Christian hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were. Christian hospitality is not just giving someone a cup of tea Christian hospitality is more than inviting people round for a meal although it might involve both of those things hospitality will mean giving someone a place to stay permanently if they need it now do you see how powerful that is in the context of 1 Peter The people Peter was writing to were suffering for being Christian. The world was against them. No doubt some of them lost their jobs because they were Christian and with their jobs went their home and everything they owned just because they bore the name of Christ. How important hospitality would be for them. Imagine the situation, you're at work faced with a choice to stand for Christ or to compromise. The choice for standing for Christ and losing your job or compromise and keeping your job and your house and your independence. Which one are you going to go for? It's a tough call, isn't it? At any time, it's a tough, tough call. But it is made easier for sure if you knew that if you lost your job, you'd be cared for by others in the church because they believed and obeyed verse 9. They would give you a place to stay and pay your bills. Do you not think that at that moment of decision at work you would be more likely to stand for Christ if you knew you would be cared for? Do you see that kind of hospitality is very powerful? It will transform our witness. And do you not think that if we started to offer that kind of hospitality to one another that the community around us would be amazed by it because no one lives that way? Would that not have a huge impact on the world? Verse 9 seems so ordinary, just stuck there, but put it up on your fridge if you do that sort of thing. It is so powerful. And if we live it here at Fullwood, it would have a a remarkably powerful effect for the gospel around here. 
First, loving each other deeply will mean bearing with each other's faults. Second, loving each other deeply will mean offering hospitality to each other. And third, loving each other deeply will mean using our gifts to serve each other. Verses 10 and 11, verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. The, 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 word, the, the word there, various forms, is literally multicoloured forms. And Peter is saying in verse 10 that God's grace comes in multicoloured forms. It's a lovely picture. The word multicoloured appears only twice in the New Testament and both times it appears here in this letter. And the other time that it is used is in chapter 1 verse 6. Just flip back to chapter 1 verse 6 with me if you will. Chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, literally multicoloured trials. Well, we've seen that. As as Christians, they were suffering in all sorts of ways. Multicoloured trials. A multiplicity of perils, just because they were Christian. And the promise of chapter 4, verse 10 is that those multicoloured trials of chapter 1 verse 6 will be matched by multicoloured grace. Every time you have a hard time, God's grace will meet it. Isn't that wonderful? God's grace perfectly matching and meeting the trials we face. And how does God bring that multicoloured grace upon us? Well, look again at chapter 4 verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. God brings his grace upon us by each one of us using the spiritual gifts we have been given to serve others. You've had a bad day at work. Unbelievers have been giving you a really hard time for being a Christian. And that evening you turn up at your home group feeling pretty fed up about the Christian life and life in general. And verse 11, someone has the gift to speak. And they teach the Bible and as they do so, it is as if you are hearing the very words of God speaking straight into your situation and you are mightily encouraged. The Bible study ends and you turn to prayer requests and you say you've had a bad day and the group want to know some more about your bad day and you say you're worried that your job is on the line because you're a Christian and you say you're going to have to stay late all the rest of this week to try and sort things out and someone in the group has the gift of service, verse 11 and they say they'll cook meals for you all this week and they'll take care of the washing and the ironing and you're massively supportive and encourage some more and then as the group turns to prayer someone has the gift of prayer they pray a prayer that hits the nail right on the head And then at the end of the evening, before you leave, someone with the gift of encouragement says one or two things to you that just again encourages you and makes you determined to keep going as a Christian. The trials of the day, the multicoloured trials met by the multicoloured grace of God as Christians use their gifts to serve others. Isn't it a wonderful picture? It is very powerful. And it is very powerful the next day when you have turned up again at work or university with determination to face the music again, determined to stand firm for the Lord, even though when you left that evening you were pretty downcast. Now do you not think that if we lived that way that it would result in the end of verse 11, God being praised through Jesus Christ to his glory? Loving one another, bearing with each other's faults, 
offering hospitality to each other, using our gifts to serve each other. That is how we can stand firm against the world. But we do need each other. We really can't do it on our own. Because being a Christian is being in a war zone with ever-shifting pockets of resistance and a multiplicity of perils trying to take us out. But the Lord in his people, by his spirit, through his word, builds us up, encouraging us to stand fast in the grace of God. And as we do, we trust that those around will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we're in a war zone, many of us will be feeling that very acutely, some more than others, but uh, many in this congregation fearing going to work tomorrow or university or school. We pray you'd give us courage to stand. We pray that you'd help us to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ, to suffer even for doing good. Help us to turn away from sin to realise that it wars against our soul, that it does us no good at all. And may we be a body here, a family, of such deep love for one another, that whatever goes on outside, we would always find here a place of security and unconditional love that means we're ready to go out again, to stand for you, and to bring glory and honour to your great and holy name. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.